Uh, it has been uh, a great series, a great summer here at Genesis. Uh, we started a, a series called Paradox, a journey through the Psalms, uh, nine weeks ago. And it has been an absolute joy and pleasure to spend uh, this entire summer, uh, every single Sunday, considering a psalm, and specifically, usually just one or two verses uh, within a psalm. Uh, and my heart, when we started this series nine weeks ago, uh, was that these psalms would help us walk with God. Uh, it was real simple. Uh, my heart for me and for my wife and for my kids this summer is that we would have stories, not of the things that we got to do and, and places that we got to go, but that we'd have some stories of, well, we got to see God at work in our lives and we got to walk with God this summer. And so uh, nine weeks ago, and if you weren't here nine weeks ago, that's okay, but I just wanted you to know the heart of walking through these psalms uh, was that these psalms encourage us, they help us, they inspire us, they challenge us, they motivate us, they remind us of how to walk with God. And one of the things that I was just freshly reminded of as I spent a lot of time in the Psalms this summer was this. I wrote it down in my journal like this. God wants us to see his heart. God wants us to see his heart and we'll see his heart when we allow him to see ours. One of the reasons that uh, I invited anyone to share their psalm with this, this summer is it's in writing psalms that we can be honest, that we can be real. Uh, and I'm very thankful for the men and the women that have shared throughout the summer their psalms. What Amanda shared uh, just a moment ago, uh, that's shared from a place of uh, a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that they've gone through. Uh, but I've been so encouraged by the psalms that have been shared, but I'm so encouraged by the psalms in Scripture that God wants us, He wants you to see Him. He wants you to have stories of Him, and we're going to see Him, we're going to see His heart when we allow him to see ours. Uh, we call this series Paradox because I'm a paradox. You are a paradox, meaning we could be all over the place. One day we could be filled with faith, the next day filled with doubt. One day just filled with just joy and passion and excitement and wonder, and then the next day uh, just filled with sorrow and discouragement. So we are all over the place, but the Psalms have reminded me that regardless of where I am, regardless of what I'm doing or not doing, God is God. God is unchangeable. God is consistent. He is consistently consistent at being God. Uh, and so when I finally take the mask off and just get real and be honest before God, it's in that, those moments that I, that we, get to see God. And that's his heart. He wants you to see him. Uh, my heart for us today, as we're going to finish this series in Psalms, is uh, we're going to look at a psalm uh, that has been used by God in my life to encourage me, to challenge me, and uh, to remind me. Uh, and one of the things that it reminds me of uh, is God uh, used this psalm in particular that he doesn't want me to hide behind the version of myself that I think God wants to see. Uh, I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but God's used Psalm 51 in my life to remind me that I don't need to hide behind the version of myself that I think would be most pleasing to God. Psalm 51 inspires me to say, God knows who you are, be who you are, share your heart with him so that you can see his heart for you. So I'm excited for Psalm 51. It's been helpful, encouraging, challenging to me. But one of the things that Psalm 51 does, it's written by King David. Uh, King David uh, has many requests that he makes in this Psalm 51. Uh, but I would go as far as to say that he makes... Uh, an incredible request of God in Psalm 51 uh, 
that I think is probably the most important request he ever made of God. Now, I don't know uh, what all of you are requesting of God today, but before I read Psalm 51, I just wanted to ask, what is it you are requesting of God today? Uh, what is it that you are actually asking of God today? Um, what are the things that when you are thinking about God, when you're talking to God, what are the things that you're asking him for? What are the things that you're requesting of him to do? When you pray, what does that conversation look like? Of God, would you do, well, how do you fill in the blank? What is the request that you are asking of, of God? Uh, Psalm 51, David makes a lot of requests, but there's one request in particular that I'm going to focus on. Uh, this is known really as a psalm of confession. Um, and if you're familiar with King David, uh, he was a king uh, in the Old Testament, king of uh, the, the nation of Israel. Uh, and when I say it's a psalm of confession, what he's confessing in particular to is cheating, uh, committing adultery, uh, then killing the spouse of the woman that he committed adultery with, and then trying to cover it up. So this is pretty big, right? Committing adultery, committing murder, and then trying to cover it up, acting as if this actually never happened. So let me ask you the question. If you committed adultery, if you're a husband or wife, if you cheated on your spouse, and then you not only did that, but then you killed the spouse, the husband or wife of the one that you cheated on with, and then tried to cover that whole thing up, do you think you would be aware that you did that? Like, do you think you would be aware of your actions, aware of your sinful choices, selfish choices? Or do you think that you would at all be like, well, what's the problem? It was just adultery. It was just murder. I mean, it's just one guy. It was just one person. And what's, the, like, no one needs to know. Like, would you have that mentality that you could just move on with life and act as if nothing had actually happened? Now, I think most of us would be like, no, that's kind of a big deal. Committing adultery, kind of a big deal. Committing murder, definitely a big deal. Then hiding it and acting as if it didn't happen, that's a big deal as well. Well, in this Psalm 51, David didn't actually confess anything to the Lord until almost a year later. So there's a year has gone by between when he actually committed adultery, murdered, covered it up for almost a better part of a year. And I think to myself, David, how is it possible that you could live your life acting as if nothing actually happened and go about your priestly duties, your political duties, your military responsibility? How could you possibly go on acting as if nothing even happened? And as I start to kind of judge David in my heart and my head of how could you possibly do that, the Lord reminded me of, Michael, how many sins have you grown comfortable with? How many sins, Michael, have you grown comfortable with that you've rationalized them away because it's not that big of a deal? After all, no one really knows about it, Michael, and no one needs to know about it. Like, how many sins have I somehow, over time, just grown comfortable with and I'm acting as if it's absolutely no big deal? Do you have any things in your life, any selfish choices, any sinful choices that somehow along the way you've just grown comfortable with? Now, for me, uh, and I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the gap between when I confess my sin before God and uh, uh, when I confess my sin before God and when it actually happens is pretty large sometimes. 
pretty large of when I actually did something and when I actually confessed it. And I was thinking, why do I do that? Like, why do I let a few days? Why would I let a, a week? Why would I let a month go on? And then it really occurred to me of, well, Michael, you do that because when you finally confess to God whatever it is that you've done, you want to be able to tell God, but God, look at all the good things that I've done in the last month. Like, you can't be that upset about something I did a month ago because look at the last 30 days. They've been phenomenal. I mean, I've read my Bible so much. I've prayed so much. I sing louder than anybody. Like, God, you have to be like, okay, it was a month ago, right? Let's move on. It's kind of like a, uh, someone who's now graduated from college and they're hanging out with their parents and, and they tell their parents, hey, mom and dad, you never knew this, but when we were in high school, we snuck out like every single weekend. We partied all the time and I was high most of my high school years. And it's, okay, well, what do your parents do with that? It's the mentality of, well, you can't do anything about it now because look what I've done with my life. I've gone to college, I've got a job, and ha, 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 wasn't that so funny back then? And I think sometimes I can do that. Can you do that? David let an entire year go by before he finally said to God, what I've done is wrong. Now, what I love about what God does for David, I, I wrote it down in my journal, God loved David enough and loves you and I enough to not allow us to live and act as if our sin before him does not matter. A year went by, God was certainly gracious, but God loved David and he loves me and he loves you enough to say, I'm not going to let this stand between us because there's you and there's me and I want you to experience more of me, but you see, you've got this thing that you're not willing to talk about. You've got this thing that's kind of been a thing for a long time. And even though you're saying it's not a big thing, it's still a thing. And until that thing is addressed and dealt with, we're going to have a hard time moving forward. So God does an amazing thing for King David. He sends a man named Nathan. You can read this story later, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a man in the Old Testament named Nathan. He's a prophet. And a prophet was just simply someone who heard from God and then would tell other people, hey, this is what God is saying. And so Nathan comes to David and says, David, I got a story to tell you. And here's the story. It's a story of a rich man. And this rich man had everything, everything he had. This was the rich man. He had absolutely everything. But then David, there was a poor man and he had absolutely only one thing. And the rich man took the one thing that was the only thing from the poor man. And David, when he hears a story of a rich man who had everything, who took the only thing, the one thing, away from the poor man, this is David's response to Nathan. David, this is a 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, he was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And it was, you read it like, David, are you still that blind? Can't you tell that you're the dude in the story? Like, don't you know that Nathan's talking about you? And when I read that story, I'm like, wow, sin has an incredibly, unconfessed sin has a blinding effect. David could not see that he was the rich man who had everything that took away the only thing that the poor man had. And so verse 7 in chapter 12, Nathan said to David, you're the man. David, you are that guy. The guy that you just pronounced judgment should die for what he's done. That's you. And so David hears these words 
And his heart is pierced with the realization that his sin is not actually hidden before God. And then he says in verse 15 of chapter 12, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Somewhere, 12 months, 15 months had gone by before when he did what he did with Bathsheba, killed her husband. It's a lot of time. But finally, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. So I share this as background because this is David's Psalm 51, a psalm of confession. And it's helpful for me and important for me to read Psalm 51, remembering that, yes, a year roughly went by between when David sinned and when he actually confessed it. But why this is important for me to remember is it highlights how significant the request that he asks of God. Now, as I read Psalm 51, I'm going to read a better part of Psalm 51. I wanted you to remember something that I've already said. God wants us to see his heart, and as we'll see, uh, and we will see his heart when we allow him to see ours. David in Psalm 51 says, God, this is me. Here's my heart. What I love about Psalm 51, God says to David, thank you. Here's my heart for you. This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Do you notice what David does here in verse 1 when he says, God, your mercy, because you are compassionate and mercy, would you blot out my stains? Not because I let a year go by and look at how much good I've done in the past year, but because you are gracious and kind and forgiving. Verse 2, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal or steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifices you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart, O oh God. You know, I read that and I'm like, who talks like that anymore? Who prays like that? Do you? Like, when's the last time you prayed something along those lines where you poured out your heart before God? What I love about what David does in Psalm 51 is 
because he poured out his heart before God, he was finally honest before God, he got to see God's heart for him. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that could be said about these 17 verses that I read, but I wanted just to ask the question, what was the request that David made that was so significant? Like, I would honestly go as far as say it was probably the biggest request he ever made of God. What was that request that he made? If you were listening to the few verses that I read, well, he made a bunch of requests. He made a, a lot of requests of God, nearly a dozen requests. God, I'm requesting your mercy uh, that my sin would be blot out, for, uh, that my guilt would be taken away, that I would have a clean heart and a loyal spirit. Many times David is requesting different things of God, and each of these are significant and important, absolutely. But the request that I think was an audacious request that David asked is found in verse 11 of Psalm 51. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, I know what I've done, and I know that because I've done what I've done, and you're a holy God, and a just God, you have every right to say, your sin and my holiness are not compatible. You have every right to say, away from me forever. God, you have every right to take the spirit that you've given me and say, no more. David's request is, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Why do I say this is such a huge, significant request that David is making? And I wrote it down in my journal like this. If the Spirit of God is not with you, if we cannot live in the presence of God and have the presence of God within us, then what's the point? If we can't be in the presence of God and have the Spirit of God living within us, living through us, then what are we doing? Like, what is, what is the point of that? And so for me, here's my paradox. I am a Christian. And when I say I'm a Christian, what I mean by that is I've accepted Jesus Christ as God, as my Lord, as my Savior, to forgive me for all of my sins, past, present, and future. And the gift that God gave to me as a follower of Christ was not only that my sins were forgiven and I have peace with him uh, in eternity in heaven, but the gift that God has given me is his spirit. If you are a Christian, meaning you trust Jesus Christ as your God, as Lord, as Savior, the gift that he's given you is you have his spirit living within you. And so here is the paradox. I know I have the spirit of God not just a piece of it, not just a part of it, but the Spirit of God living within me, but yet I often live and act upon my own strength and as if I'm somehow alone. I know that I have the Spirit of God, but yet my life often reflects one who's just trying to do everything in his own strength, own abilities, own power, all of that kind of stuff. That's the paradox. Why do I know something that I have been given something, but yet my life doesn't always reflect what I know to be true, that I have the Spirit of God. If you look at what set apart men and women in the Scriptures, men and women who walked with God, uh, men and women who were used by God, men and women who saw God do amazing things in their midst and amazing things through them, what set them apart was the presence of God in their life. What set them apart was they had the Spirit of God in them living through them. I think of uh, Moses. If you're familiar with Moses, Ten Commandments, Red Sea, led the nation of Israel for years and years and years. 
And he says to God in Exodus chapter 33, Moses said, speaking to God, if you don't personally go with us, well, don't make us leave this place. God, if you're not going to be there with us, if your presence is not going to be among us, if your presence is not going to be in me, then don't make us go. God, what is the point of going to a place where you will not be? What is the point of going to a place where you're not dwelling within me, within us, within the people of God? What set apart Moses and all these men and women who walked with God was the Spirit of God at work through them. So here's the question. Out of all the things that David could have asked, why did he ask God, God, please don't banish me from your presence, and God, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me? I think when David wrote this psalm, and when he's asking God for this incredible request, please don't take your spirit. Do not take your spirit from me. I think David is freshly aware of the king that served before him. I think David is freshly aware of King Saul, the man who ruled and reigned before King David took over being king. And I think he was freshly reminded of what happened to Saul when Saul sinned against God. When Saul said, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go and do my thing, go my own way. It says in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And David was there. David was there to witness what happened to a man when the spirit of God left that man. He saw that that man became embittered, an angry, jealous man filled with rage and anger, a man who was absolutely tormented, a man who ultimately tried to kill King David. David was freshly aware of when the Spirit of God leaves, what happens. And I think when he requested God, do not take your spirit from me, God, I saw what happened to Saul. And I know my sin is worthy of that. God, please do not leave me. Do not take your presence from me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. How much of what you do on just a day-to-day basis, how much of what you do is done because the Spirit of God is at work within you? I just, I want you to be honest with yourself at least. How much of what you do is done because the Spirit of God is at work in you? In other words, how much of what you do on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis is being done Because the spirit of the living God resides in you and is working through you. If you're married and you're a husband, how much of you as a husband is being done because the spirit of God is at work in you as a husband, loving and caring and cherishing your wife? And how much of it is just you, just being you, just trying to gut through it, get through it, How much husbands is it because the Spirit of God is in you? If you're married and you're a wife, how much of you as a wife is actually being accomplished because the Spirit of God is at work in you as a a wife? For those of you who have a job, whether your job is going to an office all day or uh, maybe teaching or maybe your job is being a full-time student, how much of your job, your work, your studies, teacher, whatever your employment might be, how much of it honestly is done 
because the Spirit of God is at work in you every single day. I mean, think about where you work, wherever it is, you're spending 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week doing what you do. How much of that time you could say, you know what? I can just see the Spirit of God who lives within me is at work in me and he is at work through me. Francis Chan, uh, pastor, author, wrote a really helpful book called Forgotten God. Uh, Forgotten God meaning the Holy Spirit. And he said this, I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this by my own power. I want to live in such a way that I am desperate for him to come through. I believe he is calling me, calling all of us to depend on him for living in a way that cannot be mimicked or forged. And I remember when I read that book years ago, that was one quote that just stuck with me. Because it just begs the question, how much of what you're doing can actually just be mimicked and forged by other people? Because you're willing to maybe work hard, put in a little bit extra time, but you can't mimic or forge the Spirit of God at work in a human heart and a human soul. So just being honest with yourself. Because when I'm honest with myself, so much of what I do is just done because I'm getting through it. Depending on my own strength, depending on my own abilities, depending on my own perceived whatever. And I know I have the Spirit of God who lives in me, who wants to do so much more, but yet I still trust in myself. I still depend on myself. So how much of what you do is done just by you? What sets apart David, what sets apart all of these great men and women, heroes of the faith, both Old Testament, New Testament, throughout church history, is what set these men and women apart is the Spirit of God at work in them and through them. Like when David was doing his own thing and like when depending on his own strength and power, he was an idiot, slept with another man's wife, killed the husband, and then covered it up. He accomplished nothing on his own. But yet there's this thing in us that says, I can accomplish so much more on my own. You can't. I am so encouraged by his request. God, please don't take your presence. Do not take your spirit from me because David knew how much could be accomplished with and through the spirit of God in him, working through him. Jay Packer, a pastor, theologian, wrote a great book called The Spirit Within You. He said, the extent to which the spirit actually penetrates and possesses every moment of our time, every corner of our lives, every sphere of our thought and activity is always capable of enlargement. I love that. You can't exhaust what the Spirit wants to do with you. Every aspect of you, every aspect of what you do, you can't exhaust what the Spirit wants to do with you and through you. I just want to finish by asking this question and then giving you one, one answer, one, one way to remember this. Uh, the question would be, well, what is a life marked by the spirit of the living God in you? What does that even look like? Because if you're a Christian, you don't like have to get the Holy Spirit. You already have the Holy Spirit. So if you have been given the spirit of God and he's living in you, well, gosh, what does that life look like? Because one would think that life looks a little bit different. It says in uh, Romans chapter eight, really clear Christ lives within you. 
So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit uh, gives you life because you have been made right with God. And I want you to hear this verse. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, He lives in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from death to life, where is He? He, he lives in you. So one would think if the same Spirit that woke Jesus from death to life lives in you, our lives should, our lives could, our lives must be different. So what would that difference be? Sam Storms, another great author, pastor, I love how he, he commented on that passage in Romans. God doesn't simply give us his spirit. Okay, I want you to hear this. He doesn't just give us something. He gives the spirit into us, not just like around us, not kind of like floating around. He gives his spirit into us. Not just to us, but by an act of what can only be called intimate impartation, his spirit resides within to encourage and energize and enable. The spirit isn't just here, he's inside. He is inside of you. And I know that sounds like weird. What does that even mean that the spirit of God lives within me? So I just wanted to give you one thought of what life looks like living with the Spirit of God, living in you, living through you. And I wrote it down in my journal like this. The Spirit of God in you will enable you to accomplish all that God wants to do through you. The Spirit of God in you, not just around you, but in you, will enable you to accomplish all that God wants to do through you. In other words, God is committed to helping you accomplish his will in the life that he's given you. I know this might sound hard, but God is not committed to helping you accomplish your will in your life. He's he's not. But he is committed to helping you accomplish all that he wants to do with you and all that he wants to do through you. One of my favorite verses about uh, King David uh, is at the end of his life. This is a New Testament where they're referring back to King David. It says in uh, Acts 13, 36, For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I read that. I'm like, I so want that. After I've accomplished anything and everything, no matter what it is that God wants me to do, take me. And how did David accomplish the will of God in his own generation? Because the Spirit of God lived within him and empowered him, enabled him to do all that God wanted him to do. When David did his own thing, he was a mess. When he tried to accomplish his own will, his own way, his own desires, he made a mess of not only his life, but his family's life and other people's lives as well. But I love that it's said of David, he, uh, for after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and he was buried with his ancestors. Here's maybe a, just an honest, honest question for you. But do you ever get sick of doing what you want to do? <laughs> do you ever get just tired of just trying to make your way the way? Like, has there ever been a point where you're just like, I'm so sick of always doing what I want to do and it just never works out. 
You ever just get tired of like, you keep going down this road and there's something in you that says, it's not going to work. Don't go that direction. Uh, that's, but yet you're like, no, it's going to work this time. I just, I'm going to try this differently and I'm just going to work a little bit harder and I might even pray a little bit more. Do you ever just get to that point where you're just, you, you kind of get sick of yourself? Sick of yourself and meaning like you just get tired of doing your own thing, going your own way? Stephen Furtick um, is a pastor in uh, North Carolina, uh, wrote a, a, a helpful book uh, about a year or two ago called Greater. And he said this, I'm meeting more and more Christians who are unsatisfied with the kind of Christian they've be, they're becoming and the version of the Christian life they're experiencing. We all, we all know instinctively, even if we can't articulate it exactly, that something isn't squaring up. And I remember reading that, and I'm like, wow. I felt that, and I spend a lot of time with people who feel like, man, this brand of Christianity that I'm experiencing, is there more? I thought it was supposed to be different. Like, I was told that I had the Spirit of God living in me, but living in me seems to be a lot of other stuff. And he goes on to say, you can't keep living like this, sporadically reading the Bible as though it is your guide to great things God did in other people's lives in the past. There's a price to pay for Christian complacency. In time, you'll be bitter about the opportunities you missed, opportunities to be used by God to touch lives, uh, to get outside yourself and be part of something greater. What does the Spirit of God in your life look like? If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit today. You can't do anything to get it. If you have faith in Christ, He's given you His Spirit. So what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is the Spirit of God at work in you is going to empower you to accomplish God's will in your life. Not your will, not your plans, not your ways, but accomplish His plan, His purposes, His ways. And so the obvious question then just becomes, well, I'd like to know what that is. I meet with a lot of people who say, Mike, I just feel stuck. If God would just tell me to do, tell me what to do, I, I promise you I'd do it. As if us not doing what God wants us to do is somehow God's fault. As if, like, God is like, I'm just not going to tell him. I'm just going to watch him, like, fumble around and, you know. I wanted you to think about it like this. Before we can do all that God wants us to do, empowered by His Spirit at work in us and through us, we must do what we've deemed insignificant. A year had gone by between when David did what he did and when he finally said, I have sinned against God. There was this thing standing between him and God. And God was gracious to David to bring someone in his life to say, David, you're that man. And it was when he finally admitted, acknowledged what he had deemed insignificant. How do you live an entire year with not even confessing to God, hey, sleeping with that woman, hey, killing that guy? Until David was willing to do what God was telling him to do and confess what was keeping him from God, he couldn't move forward. And so I just want to ask you one last question. Is there anything before you and God today that is holding you back from experiencing his power at work in your life and through your life? Because I'm convinced if you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God. But many of us don't 
enjoy, don't experience the power of God's Spirit at work in us, through us, because we want to do like these big, 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 great things, but God is saying, gosh, but what about that? Like that thing that you ignore, that thing that you think you're hiding, that thing that you don't think is that really that big of a deal. God's saying, you can't like go over here. Can't you, can we deal with this first? And so what I love about Psalm 51 is David finally just gets honest before God and says, I've rebelled, I've sinned, I've done my own thing. God, would you forgive? Would you restore? And God just smiles and says, absolutely. Enjoy my forgiveness, enjoy my grace, enjoy my spirit at work in you and through you, David, to now accomplish all that I have for you. 